0: Luke chapter twenty four, beginning in verse forty four, is where we'll be this morning. I know I told you last week in your, uh, in the bulletin that we'd be studying Matthew twenty eight, uh, verses uh, eighteen through twenty again. But uh, well, the Lord just led me in a different direction this week in preparation. I felt like I needed to zero in on this particular passage. We're in a very short series of sermons right now. Um, I've decided to just call that sermon series the Mission of the Church. Where I'm trying to lay out the biblical mission and vision of of the church, of the church in general, given to us by Jesus, because that should also be the mission of our church, the mission of any local church should be the mission that Jesus lays out in the scripture for the for the whole church. And I'm aiming in this sermon, in this series of sermons, to cast the biblical vision of who we are to be and what we're to be doing as a church. and, uh, and I know a couple of you guys spoke with me this week, and, um, and I'm very thankful that I always like feedback on my sermons and made me aware that oftentimes that phrase vision casting is used um, in ways that I'm not using it today. By vision, I do not mean something unique or extra biblical, but I mean something old, something passed down from of old, something that is ultra biblical. Uh, in other words, the Bible determines and drives the mission and the vision Or the purpose, if you want to use that word, of any church. Maybe a better word for us this morning is the word focus. The word focus. So as you're turning there to Luke chapter 22, verses 44 through 49, um, I don't know how many of you guys in here like photography. and we have any photographers at Harbin's that are just... Okay, we got one or two, and some of them are kids. That's cool. Any other that are just really into photography? I got into photography when I was very young. I remember specifically when I really began to like photography... It was when my grandmother gave me this little bitty square Kodak camera, and um, she asked me, I was staying with her for the summer, and she said I could go take pictures of the campground. She was a, her and her, my grandfather, they they ran a campground. So I went and took pictures, and of course back then, kids, you had to actually take the little canister out of the camera and take it to a drugstore, which would then take two weeks to get it back before you could see the pictures. Now, I, I don't have any of those pictures. I just remember... I enjoyed going out and trying to capture real life on a film, on film. And I just enjoyed it. And, and ever since then, I, I enjoyed photography. Now, I'm not necessarily good at it, and I don't uh, practice it that much anymore. But there's some things you learn when you're doing photography. And, of course, obviously, and you don't have to be a photographer to know this, you've got to have the right focus. And so i got a, a picture here I'm going to put up of a guy here, and uh, he's, he is in focus and I'm going to compare that picture with the picture that's after this, where he is, he is out of focus. I'm going to snap back and forth between those two pictures. Um, now, if you have an automatic camera these days, you got to be careful where that little square is, right? Because it, that little square there, and you hit the little autofocus thing, you end up focusing on the wrong thing. You end up focusing on maybe the background instead of on the person. The subject of the picture is not the beautiful tree back there. The subject of the picture is this dude. I have no idea who this is, by the way. This guy, all right? From Google, Okay, this is Google dude. This Google dude here, okay, he's, he's the subject of the picture. And therefore, he is the one that is supposed to be in focus. Now, there's different photography techniques where sometimes you may want the subject to be a little bit out of focus. But generally speaking, when you're taking a good picture, you want the subject to be in focus. And what I want us to think about as a church, there are many, many things that a church can do. There are many, many good things that a church may want to do. Community restoration, tackling pressing social issues, seeking justice, taking care of the poor. These are not at all bad things. But the question I've been asking myself over the past several months is, what is the church supposed to be doing primarily? What is our focus? Just as you're taking a picture here, you want the background to be good. You want the background to be beautiful. But why? For the purpose of enhancing the subject. The subject is the focus. Uh, The person you're taking the picture of is the focus. And what happens a lot of time in the church is that the church loses its focus on the main thing. The main thing is that the church ought to be making, maturing, and mobilizing disciples of Jesus Christ with the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that the other things are not good and that believers ought to not be participating in them. We should be. But they are not the focus of the church. They are the background that actually beautifies the main thing. That's what Titus 2, 1 through 10 speaks about. Paul speaks about all these good things, these good deeds that different people in the church ought to be doing. And he says this at the end. He says we ought to be doing these things that adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The background adorns the subject. The good deeds that we should be doing and we ought to be doing if we're truly believers, we've been transformed. The good deeds should adorn the gospel, which should be our focus. Making, maturing, and mobilizing disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I argued last week that the main mission of the church is found in the Great Commission... And we look specifically at Matthew's version of the Great Commission. And I'll refer back to that text again this morning. But for today's sermon, I want to look primarily at Luke's version of the Great Commission. So please stand now. Hopefully you found that passage. Please stand now. We stand at Harbin's when we read God's Word. Because we stand in the honor of this Word that we're about to preach. It is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he said to them, To all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, before we go any further in trying to look at your perfect word, I pray that you'd forgive us of any sins that we might have. In our hearts right now, we know we've committed that we have not confessed to you. Lord, please forgive us. We are fallible beings. We sin daily, multiple times daily, multiple times upon multiple times daily. In some ways that we're aware of and that we should be confessing to you right now in our hearts. But in other ways that we're not even aware of. And we just trust your forgiving grace that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness and restore us. Make us the people you want us to be this morning. And so as we come to your word, Lord, as we think about who Harbin's is, who we are as a church, God, I pray that you would just continue to lay down your word and let that be our road map. Lord, don't let me impose a man-made, man-centered, man-imagined vision on this church, because then we will become very, very weak. But instead, anchor us to the truth, the truth of your word. So I pray that you would grant me the grace to speak it this morning, open my mouth to speak, and open all of our ears, mine included, to hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This, um, we're in the, like I said earlier, we're casting our our the, the vision, the mission of our church over these next few weeks, and, and and what I'm trying to get out in these sermons is what's what's been up here and what's been in here really since the sabbatical, and uh, not that hopefully anything that's in here or up here is something outside of what's here, uh, but just I want us to be thinking about how we do this, how we do the mission that God has laid down for the church, and last week I gave you Matthew 28, 18-20. I want to remind you of that text. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I gave you this model. Let's see if I can bring it up this week. It doesn't really come through on the screen very well, but there's a circle there. And you'll see that there's this circle that has kind of these arrows on it that's to indicate motion. This is the making, the maturing, and the mobilizing of disciples. This is what we should be doing as a church. And the word disciples is in the center there because that verb, make disciples, okay, which is um, mathetuo. That verb is the central imperative verb of this text. The remaining verbs, go, baptize teach. Those are all um, participles. They're verbal adjectives that, that describe how we go about the process of making disciples. And so those, those participles, I put disciples in the middle here because that's the focus of the verse. And I'm letting those participles sort of drive all these other ver- words. So when it says baptizing them, that, that's the entry point to making disciples is, is baptizing them. Um, the baptism represents submission to the gospel. It represents a belief in the gospel. It represents union with Christ. It's the entry point of discipleship. It is, it is the making of disciples. Not that baptism makes disciples, but it is the mark that a disciple has been made. People are reached with the gospel. Therefore, we as a church must know the gospel. The memory verse that Selah quoted earlier in the service, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In order to reach people with the gospel, we must get the message right. We want to get the message right. And that's my focus today. As I think about making disciples, let's get the message right. How should Harbin's make disciples? And then there's the, the, the participle teaching them. Teaching them, which is represented here by the word Mature. There's a continual process of discipleship that should be going on represented in our model here. People are sanctified with the gospel. Notice that the gospel is involved in everything. The word gospel here is in three places because we make mature and mobilize with the gospel. And so the gospel is the means of sanctification as well. Therefore, we not only must know the gospel, we must grow in the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's at work. So in order to grow people in the gospel, we must get the message in. So we must get the message right. We must get the message in. Into each and every one of us as part of Harvard's, continue to get the gospel message in. Next week, I hope to lay out a biblically driven vision for how we do that. How should Harbin's, in our context here, this church, how should we mature disciples? And finally, the, the third participle, which actually begins at the beginning of the verse, is the word go. Go. The ongoing call to take the gospel message and make new disciples is represented by the word mobilize here in our, in our picture Yes, we must know the gospel, we must grow in the gospel, but we also must go with the gospel. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So in order to be a church that's truly on mission, we need to get, we want to get the message out. So we want to get the message right, we want to get the message in, and we want to get the message out out. And of course, there's overlap in these areas. There's, there's blending of what we do as a church. Sometimes we may do something that involves all three of these. The, 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 most centrally, this worship service should be doing all of these things. But there's other things we should be doing as a church to make mature and mobilize disciples. Today, I want to focus on this first M, making. Not so much on methods, but on the message. Okay? Not so much on... Um, the extent, but on the content. I want to draw our attention to Luke's version of the Great Commission today, because in it, I see the values that will enable us to carry out the mission. Now, a quick word here on core values. When we launched the church, you know, I was told you had to have a a mission statement, a vision statement, and core values. And you had to have exactly, I think, seven core values. All right? So, but you know what? That's, not in here. There's there's nothing that tells you you have to start a church that way. The mission is in here, yes. But we we developed six core values. We didn't hit seven. Maybe that's our problem. Um, We came up with six core values. But you know what? They were just words. They were just stuff we put on. A lot of them were trendy words. Authentic relationships. What does that mean? Okay? And and as I've prayed throughout the summer and prayed about what what makes the core values or what makes you, you? What, what makes you the church you are? Where God has placed you? And as I got to thinking about the core values, our core values have to be just like our mission, absolutely rooted in the scriptures. And, and really I see in this text today three of those core values. I'm replacing our old core values, okay? So here's the deal. Go to the website, to the core values page, and just just delete it off your cats, your browser, all right? It's gone. Because I'm, I'm replacing it with something much more biblical, And that's the first three of those six. I still only have six. The first three of those six core values I'm going to be sharing with you today out of this text. And here's the first one. At Harbin's, we can only make true disciples if we highly value, number one, the sufficiency of Scripture. Friends, one of our core values has to be the sufficiency of this book right here. The absolute sufficiency of God's Word. Let's look at the text here, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now when Jesus says the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, he's referring to the Old whole Old Testament. That is, the, that is the Hebrew breakdown of the Old Testament. You realize that, the, that the, the Jewish Old Testament, even though it's the same books, is structured differently than ours. And that's the way it was structured with, with uh, law, okay, uh, the prophets, and uh, the writings or the Psalms. So as Jesus here, we see from Jesus's words here that one of the keys to our mission of true discipleship is to have our minds opened to understanding the Scriptures, We must see that God's word is our starting point, that it is sufficient for the mission that Jesus gives us. Look here at this text. What does Jesus do or say to send his disciples out on their mission? This is the Great Commission. He is sending them out on their mission. So what does he do to prepare them to send them out on this mission? Does he rehearse a series of leadership principles to them? Does he move them with some grand motivational speech? Matter of fact, most people are surprised by how little Jesus says after the resurrection. He's very clear, but he says not too much. Does he lay out for them a a fail-safe system for for making the gospel attractive? Does he present to them some sophisticated philosophical argumentation to equip them? No, no. What does he do? He points them to the Scriptures. Matter of fact, that's what he had been doing the whole time. The whole time he had been walking this earth, in his earthly ministry, he had been pointing the Scriptures out to them. Look at verse 44 again. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. While he was still walking with them, eating with them, living with them for three years the disciples had experienced life 24-7 with Jesus. And all that time, he was, he was teaching them, he was speaking to them. And what was it that he spoke to them and that he taught them during those three years when we read the answer in the rest of verse 44? Here's what he taught, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus had been all along teaching them about himself from the Old Testament Scriptures. He had been showing them that he is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Now, when we get back to our verse-by-verse series through the life of Christ, we'll get back into seeing this. but, But hopefully you saw that when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus was showing them. I am the one who's come to fulfill the law. But they didn't see it. He was doing this, even if they didn't know it, he was doing this. Silly illustration, but I was thinking of the karate kid. The first one, the good one, right? Okay, Danielson has been told to go out and and wax cars and paint fences. And what else did he do? Sand the deck. He sanded the deck, he painted the fences, he waxed the cars. All along he was being taught karate and he didn't know it. And so when the moment comes and Mr. Miyagi throws a punch at him and he says, you know, paint the fence. He does it, right? All along he had been learning and he didn't even know it. And I think that's kind of what was happening with the disciples. Jesus has been showing them over and over again, I am the fulfillment. That passage in Isaiah about me, that Moses, he wrote about me. It's all about me. And so here he comes, he he has risen from from the grave and now he shows them, he opens their minds now to understand the Scriptures. The reason they didn't see it is because they had to have their eyes opened to see it. Now they see it because Jesus has come. So we talk here at Harmon's a lot about this, about the the Christocentric nature of the Scriptures, and I want to continue that. Matter of fact, as I share the, and I'll use the word, the vision or the focus of our church, as I share that, it's not like I have a bunch of new stuff. Part of it is for us to keep on going. That's the vision. Keep on going. We're doing some things very good. And we want to keep on. We want to keep Christ at the center of the way we look at the Bible. And so, in hermeneutics class a few weeks back, I talked about the Christocentric nature of hermeneutics. And so, my desire is for us to have an increasingly higher view of Scripture and an increasingly sharp focus on Christ. If we are truly going to be on mission, we have to have a very high, high view of Scripture. Anything less will cause us to lose our focus. Why does the church begin to focus on the background instead of the subject? Why? The churches that get dragged away by the background are usually churches that don't preach this expositionally. You will easily, we can easily become the Red Cross... Salvation Army, whatever else, some sort of social good institution. That's very easy. People want to, as Christians, as believers, we want to do good in the world, and we should do good in the world. But the greatest good in the world is to get the gospel out. It's The greatest good we can do as a church. So a high view of Scripture is key to our mission. Jesus is the main character of God's redemptive story, which is, and of course, God's redemptive story is found in this, his only inspired book, John 5, 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. That's Jesus speaking. And then later in verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote about Jesus. And then earlier in this chapter, of 24 of Luke, as Jesus is speaking to the two men on the road to Emmaus, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Like I said, I know we, I quote that verse a lot. But you know what? We need to be reminded of that verse over and over and over and over again. Lest we take this book and make it a story of heroes and moral tales. Aesop's fables. Lest we do that, let me keep reminding you. Let me keep it in front of you that the scriptures all of it is about Jesus. If we're going to make disciples, we must get the message right. The message is contained in the Bible and the message is about Jesus. Therefore we will rest on the sufficiency of this book in all of our Christian walk. 2 Timothy 3:15 You know the verse. It says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now that is the verse you go to when you talk about the sufficiency of Scripture right there. Everything we need to be complete equipped, even equipped to do the good works that we should be doing as believers is found in the Scriptures. So what does this mean for us? Harbins, in our context. What does this mean for us? Well, it should drive everything. Scripture should drive everything we do. It should formulate our worship. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, so as we worship, I mean, we, we have, I mean, who, who are the long-term members here? Toby, you've been here probably the longest. Our church hopefully has grown in how we focus on the scriptures during our worship service. We used to do a lot of other things. And those things weren't necessarily bad but they weren't the main thing and drawing us understanding the scripture should drive everything we do as a church in our worship service so we worship when we read the bible as we're told to in first timothy 413 in our public gathering so so we read peter read scripture to start the service off we we worship as we pray the bible i encourage our our deacons and others who offer up prayers during our worship service think through those prayers write those prayers out Incorporate Scripture into your prayers. We can do a lot better job of that. So we read the Scriptures in, the, in our worship. We pray the Bible. We sing the Bible. Our, our, our songs should have Scripture intermingled in them. Matter of fact, I felt the conviction for us to begin to sing more psalms in the church. And I shared that with our um, group earlier this morning. So we, 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 we read the Bible. We pray the Bible. We sing the Bible. We see the Bible what do you mean we see the Bible? I'm not talking about you seeing that I've got a Bible right here. That's good, too. I'm talking about the ordinances. When, you, when, we, do, when we baptize someone, you're seeing the Bible. You're seeing the gospel. When, when we do the Lord's Supper, you're seeing the gospel. And so that's one of the reasons I have told our deacons we're going to do our Lord's Supper more frequently now. We, had, we used to do it maybe whenever we felt like it, every two, three months. I don't know, but I want us to at least be doing it once a month. So maybe you've noticed the last two or three months we're doing it more frequently. It at least needs to be happening more frequently than what we've been doing in the past. Because you see the word when we do the Lord's Supper. And of course, we preach the word. We read it, we pray it, we sing it, we see it, and we preach it. And my desire is for us to grow in all those areas as a church. But how else does this this trusting in the sufficiency of the scriptures help us as a church or guide us as a church. Well, it fuels our discipleship. We grow people with the word. Mike, as you minister to the men you minister to, you don't just get out there and pump them up. You get the word in front of them. And sometimes that word cuts like a blade and it hurts. And sometimes that word heals like a, like a balm and a, a medicine upon their hearts. But we, we disciple with the word. And the Word should focus all of our evangelism, our, our counseling, um, uh, our missions, whether it be local, regional, global missions work. If we're involved, if we're connected with a missions group or a missions agency or we're sending a team somewhere, we want to know the Word's going to go out with that team and they're not just going to go and have a fun time. The Word must drive everything we do. But it's not, just, it's not enough for us just to highly value the sufficiency of Scripture. It harbors that we can only make true disciples if we, number one, value the sufficiency of Scripture, but number two, the centrality of the gospel. Now, you may be saying, well, what's the difference? Well, you see, it is possible to be people of the book that highly value the Scriptures, but still miss the central message of the book. If our use of the Bible is not centered upon the gospel then we run the risk of the Bible being misused. People can use the Bible as a morality handbook, heroes to be emulated. People can use the Bible as a motivational tool, strategies to be implemented. People can use the Bible as a mystical medium, magic to be executed, shaking it up like a magic eight ball. Oh God, what are you telling us to do? Those are misuses of the scriptures. We must see that the Bible is God's written word testifying to the glorious story of redemption. It is one story. Yes, it's about Jesus. But I want to get even more specific. It's about the gospel. My favorite show when I was, uh, I mean, they say something about me. I don't know. Maybe I need to repent later. But I used to watch the X-Files. All right? I loved the X-Files. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was a great stories. And they were funny sometimes. But There were individual stories each week that happened. But if you know the X-Files, there was one story arc over the whole story telling about, it was a story about government conspiracy and aliens and stuff. I can't get into it. But anyway, there was one story that overarched all the little stories and, and brought unity to all the little stories. And the story arc of the Bible is basically this, creation, fall, redemption, and then recreation or Restoration. And at the center, at the apex, the summit, the climax, the pinnacle, whatever word you want to use, is the gospel. Therefore, at Harbin's, we will continue to focus on biblical theology. But we can increase our focus and understanding of how this whole book is pointed at the gospel. We must teach and preach and even choose our curriculum and even the resources that we, all, that we want to encourage people to take counseling resources whatever it is it's all got to be gospel centered it's all got to be tied to that overarching story i don't want to give someone counsel to help them through a, a difficulty in their life by taking them to to king david and then drawing out some moral stories from king david and then encouraging that person to be like david what i want them to see is that david was just a shadow of christ and Christ can transform you. You can't be like David. You can't be like Christ. You must be made new. And you must be continually made new over the whole process of your Christian life. We have to focus on the gospel. The centrality of the gospel must be at the core of who we are as a church. So let's go back to our text, Luke 24, let beginning verse 46. This is Jesus. It says, he said to them, thus it is written... That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now I choose the phrase gospel-centered for a reason. Although at times I do substitute the word cross-centered or Christ-centered. But as I've thought about this more, especially this week, I think gospel-centered is the right phrase and I'll tell you why. Because just as people can take a high view of the scripture, but be wrong in their direction because their north star isn't Jesus. So too, people can say, well, well, we believe the Bible is Jesus-centered or Christ-centered, but then they still can miss the main message. What do I mean? What I mean is that sometimes people will say the church needs to focus on Jesus in a WWJD kind of way. You know WWJD, what would Jesus do? If that's your idea of Christ-centered, you're missing the point. Your focus, if it's WWJD, is going to be mainly on morality and maybe even social justice or whatever else. And as I said before, we should be moral people who desire social justice. But in order to truly be centered on Jesus, we shouldn't focus on WWJD, but WDJD. What did Jesus do? What did he accomplish? Why did he come? And that's what Jesus says here. when I mean, he says, this is what was written in the Old Testament. That the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached. This is focusing on the gospel and what Jesus did. And this is the astonishing good news that he lived, he died, and was buried, and rose again to reconcile sinners to God. That's the good news. That's our focus Paul does not say this in that scripture that we memorized this week. Paul does not say this, I am not ashamed of helping the sick, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Nor does he say, for I am not ashamed of social justice, for it is the power of God for salvation. Nor does Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say, "Um, I am not ashamed of feeding the hungry, for it is the power of God unto salvation No, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, says, I am not ashamed of one thing, the gospel, the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first, but also the Greek. A lot of times when you read, I was in, I studied advertising when I was in college, and I remember one of the things we studied was how companies, that we looked at certain companies that lost their focus and began to, to die out, okay, and history's littered with different companies like that. But one of the things I remember my advertising teachers say is as an, uh, as an advertiser, as helping them with their advertising, what you want to ask them is, who are you? What is your main focus? Because what companies will oftentimes do is get off focus and begin to diversify and focus on a bunch of other things, the next thing they know, they've lost what they were supposed to be doing, they've become weak, and they begin to crumble under the pressure. So, too, with the church, we have to focus on the gospel. Back to our text here, verse 46, it says, It is written, of course, where is that? It is written in the all-sufficient scriptures. So the scriptures, the Bible, in this case, the Old Testament, points to the gospel, to the work of Christ on Calvary. Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So this all-sufficient word, this Old Testament, pointed to the fact, It pointed to the all-sufficient cross, really. The passion of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, were testified to in the Old Testament scriptures. You may ask, well, where is his suffering spoken of in the Old Testament? Well, it's spoken of in places like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. And his resurrection is spoken of in places like Psalm 16, which Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. Isaiah 53, 10, and Hosea 6, 2. So this is the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15.1. Paul says this, now I would remind you. And let me pause right there. If Paul can keep reminding people of things, I'm going to do it too, all right? Remind you, remind you, remind you, remind you, remind you of the gospel. We never graduate from being reminded of the gospel. We keep reminding ourselves of the gospel. So Paul says, now I would remind you. Brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And, of course, the gospel work of Christ has a gospel outcome And we see that in the next verse, verse 24 and verse 47 of Luke chapter 24. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to focus on those two words, repentance and forgiveness of sins, just real quickly. Now, this is important because there's a lot of people out there that claim that the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, by the way, there's a lot of people that believe the Gospels make no mention of the atonement. But they are totally wrong. Matter of fact, right here we see that the Gospels do. Luke is speaking about the atonement here. Atonement is represented in these words, repentance and forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin only comes through blood. Sin under the law can only be atoned for by blood. According to Leviticus seventeen eleven. for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so we read in Hebrews 9.22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, sin incurs wrath. Wrath must be poured out. Death must occur. The only way sin can be atoned for is blood. But whose blood here in Luke? Jesus' blood. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. There's the blood the suffering of Christ, and on the third day rise from the dead. That's the acceptance of the atoning sacrifice by God the Father. The resurrection is the acceptance of the sacrifice. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in Jesus' name, based upon what he accomplished. The atonement is very clear here in Luke Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this is what Jesus meant in the Gospels when he said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom from what? Ransom from death. And the only way sinners could be ransomed was by blood. Whose blood? Jesus' blood, atoning blood. So guys, the Gospels do speak about the atonement. So therefore it harbors. What does this mean for us, who we are, our focus as a church? Therefore it harbors. we must be gospel-centered in all we do, in our preaching, and in our teaching, in our missions, work, in our counseling. Like I said earlier, you can't just be scripturally centered for counseling. You have to be gospel-centered in counseling. And in our worship, there should be a, the gospel should be presented in our worship. That doesn't mean every single song has to to present the gospel. But the accumulation of what's happening in the worship service, there should be a gospel flow to it. There's intentionality between what we put together for the worship service, and, and how that should flow, and what should be communicated through the songs, and we want the gospel to be clearly communicated. So even today, we, we start off with a psalm talking about the, about the, this name, this, this this glorious name, and then we sing about this name, and then we, then we talk about who's going to be our vision, how are we going to see this, this name, and it's Christ, and then we get into talking about the, the, that we are, as the church, we are the ones to be carrying this name, but but, but the point is, we, it brings us down to Christ being the focus of, of what we began to talk about at the very beginning. And so there's a, there's a storyline to, to worship services. You may not realize that, guys. I don't just prepare a sermon, I'm trying to put together a story for you every morning that starts from the very first thing we do. And so, therefore, it can't be taken lightly, including the greeting time. There is gospel represented in our unity. And so as we greet one another, not with a holy kiss like Paul says, okay? I don't know, maybe the regulative principle tells us we got to kiss each other on the cheek. I don't know. I just say a good handshake will work. But we greet one another because we are unified and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should be a great time of fellowship. It shouldn't be like what happens in a lot of churches. um, Yeah, you know, you just kind of, it's just something to get by. It's like an awkward pause. I love the fact that it harbors. It's always been a sweet moment in the worship services. That's there intentionally. And so at Harbin's, we we keep doing that. And we get better at that. That brings me to our third point this morning. At Harbin's, we can only truly make disciples if we highly value the sufficiency of Scripture, the centrality of the Gospel, and finally, the priority of preaching. So these are our first three values and our new core values at Harbin's. Priority of preaching is better than authentic relationships. The Old Testament scriptures then, according to Jesus, testify not only to his atoning work. They also teach us or command us to preach the message of atonement to all peoples. Look at the structure here. Let's back up to verse 45. I want you to look at the structure here. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he's teaching them the Old Testament. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, the Old Testament scriptures, thus it is written that, Number one, here's the first thing that that he tells him is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And here's number two, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus is teaching us that not only is the gospel taught to us in the Old Testament, so is evangelistic missions. Well, where in the Old Testament is it written that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem? Well, it's all over the place. It's implied in some places. It's more outrightly declared in other places. But instead of me trying to piece it together for you, tell you what, let me let the Apostle Paul do it. Romans chapter 10, verse 11. Basically what Paul does here in this very well-known passage is quote a bunch of Old Testament texts. Romans 10, verse 11, says this. This is Paul speaking to the Roman church. For the Scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask you, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their word to the ends of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, "I will make you jealous as those who are not a nation with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. but of israel he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In that passage of scripture there paul quotes isaiah forty nine twenty three joel two thirty one isaiah fifty two seven Nahum 1.15, isaiah fifty three one psalm nineteen four deuteronomy thirty two twenty one isaiah sixty five one through two i would say that that's pretty good evidence that the old testament does, does indeed speak about taking the good news to the nations and there are other places in the old testament that teach god 's desire to bring salvation to the nations isaiah forty nine six isaiah two two through three hosea one ten Hosea 2.23, Psalm 117.1, Psalm 18.49, Isaiah 11.10, and I could go on and on. I love it when I see y'all's little pencils out there just burning of the smoke coming off of the paper. The Scriptures are sufficient, friends. They are centered on the gospel, and they are calling us to preach. To preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance, in verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Proclaimed. Caruso is the word. To herald. It means to herald. It means to pronounce openly and with authority is how it's used. God's ordained means or method for getting the central message of the Scripture out to the nations is preaching. Oh, Harbins, if there's anything we must do It is to preach the gospel-centered word of God. If we fail at everything else, let us not fail to preach. Let us not fail to preach the gospel from this pulpit. And let us not fail to send out people who will preach the gospel outside of this pulpit. John came to prepare the way by preaching. Jesus arrived on the scene preaching. He sends the church in the power of the Spirit out preaching. And we preach We must preach the gospel, which is a central focus of Scripture. So I want us to be a church, Harbin's, that can't help but preach. 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to Harbin's if we do not preach the gospel. We want to be a church where preaching is the primary means of our spiritual growth. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. How do you grow as a Christian to sit under preaching? And we want to be a church where preaching is the priority of the elders. And the priority of the church's resources are focused on freeing up the elders to preach. Let me say that again. We want preaching to be the priority of the elders and I also want the priority of the church's resources to be on freeing up elders to preach. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. And I don't mean I'm asking for a raise. Don't, don't take it that way. I'm just saying that our main focus has to be preaching and it should be reflected in our budget. 2 Timothy 4.1 the charge that Paul gives to Timothy is the charge he gives to all preachers. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching in Harbin's. This means I must grow as a preacher, I must become. A better preacher. A large portion of my time needs to be spent on learning how to preach better. And Harbin's, this means we must train more men to preach. Last year we did a preaching seminar with a few other churches. I want to do that again. I want men who feel called to preach to get the opportunity to preach. It means we'll, we'll, we'll put men in this pulpit who feel that call to preach. I like having a variety of preachers in this pulpit. We must put our money toward preaching. And like I said, I'm not asking for a raise, but I would say this. The next staff person we ask to this church, add to this church, doesn't need to be a music guy. It needs to be someone who can continue to teach and preach the word because that's what's most important. We're going to put our money where our mouth is, where our mouth should be. We should be preaching the gospel. But of course, preaching is a spiritual endeavor. Without the spirit both enabling the preacher and the hearer, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So since this is a spiritual endeavor, it depends on the work of the Holy Spirit, which is how Luke concludes his great commission. Passage verse 48, you are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's referring to the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high spiritual power given by the Holy Spirit. And so, what is the first thing on the day of Pentecost? The first thing that the disciples do when the, the Spirit descends upon them and gives them this power that Jesus speaks of here in verse 48. What's the, in verse 49, sorry, what's the first thing they do? They don't go begin to heal people. The first thing they do is preach. The first sign of spiritual power in a church is preaching. Preaching the gospel unashamedly. And that's who we must be if we're going to be a spirit-empowered church church. We must be a church that takes preaching seriously. We value the priority of preaching. So these three things, and I'll bring our sermon in for a landing now. These three things are to be highly valued at Harbin's. These are our first three of our six new core values. And I forgot to write the other three up here, but I'm going to tell you, okay? And I'll get to some of those over the next couple of weeks. But first of all, we're to value the sufficiency of Scripture. We're to value the centrality of the gospel. We're to value the priority of preaching. Here's the other three um, uh, core values of our church that have been on my mind number four we need to value the necessity of discipleship number five we need to value the solemnity of family one of the things is our church we've always taken family seriously and it's why we have an integrated worship service and finally we need to value the gravity of missions the gravity of missions So those are our new core values, but they're not really new. This is really who Harbin's is. We've been this for quite a while. But I believe these things are reflected in the Word of God, and we need to be more clear when we tell people who we are. So let me conclude. Christians in here, particularly Christians who are members of this local church, let us not lose our focus. It's so easy to to get our camera, if you will, shifted onto the background. No matter how good and beautiful the background is, and we want to be doing all that background stuff, we must keep our focus on the all-sufficient Word of God, which is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, which compels us to preach the gospel to the very ends of the earth. An unbeliever here this morning, I want you to hear in Jesus' own words in today's text. Just Just as the Scripture had foretold, Jesus suffered. He bore the wrath of God. God's just anger against sin came down on his sinless shoulders. He experienced suffering that we cannot even imagine as he absorbed the wrath of God. And he suffered for all those who had put their faith and their hope in him. And we read that he died, but he did not stay dead. For sin and death had no power over Christ, for he never sinned, and therefore death could not hold him. So we know that indeed on the third day as Jesus says right here and as he was showing the disciples by standing in front of him as he said these things he rose from the grave. His resurrection shows that his sacrifice for sin had been accepted by the Father but it also secures new life for all those who put their faith in him. He takes our sin, he gives us new life. He takes our wrath, he gives us his righteousness. So just as Christ told us to we plead with you this morning to be reconciled to God. We plead with you this morning to repent, to turn from your sins, and experience true forgiveness. Forgiveness that takes our sins as far as the east is from the west. A forgiveness that only Christ Jesus, a risen, living, and ruling Christ, can give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning as we close this time of worship, and Lord, I just hope, hope that, that what was done today and what we did now was pleasing to you. And I know that if it was even as somewhat gospel centered as I wanted it to be, it is pleasing to you. Because you are pleased with the sacrifice of your son. It was your will to to crush him. And it was your will that through that crushing of your own son to to redeem a people for yourself. But we are such a foolish people. We are sheep. And sheep do stupid things. And we wander and we're prone to to going off in directions we shouldn't go and we we get focused on things we shouldn't focus on when we should have our eyes fixed on the shepherd. And so God, I pray this morning as an under-shepherd of this church, Give me the grace to use both the rod and the staff to push our people toward a greater sufficiency in the scripture, a greater centrality on the gospel, and a greater priority of preaching. So Lord, we pray that this is pleasing to you. We ask now that you would be with us now and give us grace as we sing this final song a song of thanksgiving where we're thankful for what Christ did, that he did suffer and die, and that because of that we can have repentance, we, we, we've repented and we can have forgiveness of sins. So we we want to sing about that, and we want it to be pleasing to you. So really, Lord, give us hearts of thanksgiving. If there be anyone here this morning that can't sing this song because they haven't been forgiven, Lord, I pray that they would seek me out here on the front row or or maybe one of the people of the church that they know and, and talk about this glorious gospel. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.